Massive thank you as always to our top tier patrons, Sarah Turner and Alexander Lashley. For as little as $3, you can gain access to patron-only episodes, as well as access to our Discord server, where we host weekly live discussions with host Ekoi Hero and myself. So if you like what you hear, come join us at patreon.com forward slash it's not just in your head. Please do rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on social media. We're on Reddit, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you have any questions or comments about this episode or the podcast in general, then email it's not just in your head at gmail.com. In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. If the landlord can hijack the rent by 20%, that impacts people's mental health. We can't have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. In listening to this episode, I would like to clarify that this is not a position against medication per se, in that for people who are on medication who find it helpful, this is not trying to tell anybody to stop taking medication and that any kind of medication advice should refer back to your trusted provider. This is a discussion about the larger systemic influences surrounding the medical and psychiatric industries and pharmaceutical industries and not simply a position on medication. The desire that we seek is expansive care that helps people. And that means a lot of social and financial support and stability for everyone so that they are able to heal. Today, we're going to discuss an article in madinamerica.com, which will be in the show notes, which is addressing the recent news of a study which had reviewed decades of research saying that ultimately the chemical imbalance idea around serotonin and depression is is a myth, um, that it's basically bunk. Right. Oh, I, I, you know, it's, it's one of those things where to, to flat out say that it is completely bunk is a mystery. I mean, they're just, it's just sort of my way of uh, paraphrasing. Yeah, I think it's an actual mystery of, of uh, the research. Um, but that's, that's my point of view on it. There's a key quote in this article. The cruelty of others is immeasurable and can never be underestimated, especially by those who say they care. Yeah, well, I, I think that it is a fraud because from everything that I read about the brain, everything that you do has an effect on your biochemistry. And so if you have a traumatic experience, it affects your biochemistry biochemistry. That isn't the problem then, isn't the biochemistry. It's the trauma. And I think that big pharma is a fraud, particularly perpetrated in the United States, where we have about 4.4% of the world's population and use 66% of the world's psych drugs, and is the only country in the world where you can allow direct-to-consumer drug ads. And so I, I do think it's a fraud. Now, I do think that there is zero evidence that anyone is healed by drugs. Certainly people are numbed. Their, their symptoms are less because they are numbed. But that is not because they're restored to mental health. And that, too, that drugs heal you they cure you psychologically, is a fraud to sell drugs. And Big Pharma is the most profitable of all the pharmaceutical sales in the United States. And there's, you know, and it's no accident that um, we who allow direct-to-consumer advertising and whose research is biased have found that in England under originally under Whitaker, who did the first study of thousands and thousands of mental health patients, could do so because that research was funded by the government of England with its public health care system. The United States funding is all done by the companies that are selling the products. There used to be 
in the United States. It's discontinued an entirely volunteer-run publication only for doctors called The Medical Letter. And they published only research not done by the companies that are selling the drug. But it's very hard to find now. And that was only for doctors, because obviously they have a vested interest in finding that what they're doing is successful so that they can sell more drugs. And I had a client who was a scientist working for a drug company and left because they didn't accept the negative data she was coming up with. So I think it is a fraud perpetrated by Big Pharma against people with distress. Right. So in this study that they're referencing in this article, the study reviewed decades of research. The chemical imbalance myth was shown to have no support in scientific evidence. Now, if you were being um, conservative about this, you could still say that there's no scientific evidence yet, right? And so maybe, equally, is this sort of your position on it all? Well, I mean, for one, I guess it's one of those things where, like, you know, the serotonin hypothesis in itself, right, the idea that depression is caused by low serotonin has kind of, it, it, it's a very oversimplified um, explanation that's been out of vogue even in psychiatry for over a decade. You know, that's kind of the, 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 the one of the major aspects of of these things is that like you know what is understood colloquially in the population and and you know what's been going on in terms of you know the research end of things have you know lagged quite a bit so you know the fact that like the serotonin theory is an extremely oversimplified theory that doesn't even that you know most um psychiatrists wouldn't necessarily say oh no it's just low serotonin like they, they wouldn't describe depression that way anymore, even in a lot of practices. Um, you know, right, so it's right. one of those can, things can, where can I riff so off this like, for know, a second? Sure. So it's ultimately difficult to know who to trust. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Right? So I was I've been reading this um, book recently, Dopamine Nation, and uh, sort of this idea of the chemical imbalance actually as a side i think the chemical imbalance to my mind is still very prevalent um i remember uh talking to a friend about this whole thing and she told me with you know much authority that the depression was very much a chemical imbalance and i was trying to suggest oh you know i think it's a lot more sort of environmental and everything and you know she just obviously thought i was being silly or a hippie or something like that so um you know it is uh, a huge part of uh, the zeitgeist, I think. It, like it, it has entered into most people's lives. There's some sort of basic understanding of that idea, and you know, that's uh, that's not great <laughs> if it's right totally wrong. Right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, again, like most things about you know, kind of complicated matters. It is in terms of like public consumption um, compartmentalized into overly reductive and simplified narratives that ultimately most often does not serve to, un, you know, further understanding of the subject. Like that's just, you know, a common uh, issue that we have regarding complex topics in the public sphere, right? Uh, we also have this issue, right? Yeah, I understand too, but I also understand that in the research, the drugs that were administered for depression were only as effective as sugar pills 75% of the time. And the other 25, they might have helped with severely depressed people, but they couldn't really separate that from the Hawthorne effect, which is that if you expect to be made better, you may temporarily be made better. And the results were temporary. And there's huge research on that. And yet those pills are marketed wildly and widely. And even in the United States, 
the National Institutes of Mental Health put out a statement that said, the DSM-5, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, and the drugs associated with it ignore etiology. They ignore, how did you get depressed? What was the matter? And that right. that oh, is absolutely. Cool. Part of they don't have an advertising budget, and therefore that voice was drowned. So this is try. This is directly tied to a, a multi-billion-dollar pharmaceutical industry that bribes psychiatrists and faculty outrageously. The case of Biederman is the most wonderful illustration. Biederman was the head of the. Yale Child Psychiatry Department, I'm sorry, the Harvard Child Psychiatry Department, and also the Child Psychiatry Association of the United States. He wrote that the drug Zyprexa for schizophrenic adults could really help children with mental health problems. For that, he got a $3.4 million and a big donation for a research wing at Harvard for himself. Okay, it turns out Zyprexa administered to children causes diabetes and doesn't do a thing to help their mental health problems. It just ruins them physically through acute diabetes. And right. in an interview with his assistant, I was impressed to hear his assistant talk when they asked this doctor, how could you suggest that Zyprexa is good for children when it caused untold suffering. And in a moment of uncharacteristic honesty, his assistant laughed and said, hey, when you're, because they were fine, they got the biggest fine in history, over a million dollars. He said, hey, when you're racing towards a billion dollars, you pay the traffic ticket. In other words, if it's found out that you've destroyed the lives of thousands of children, so you're fined. It doesn't measure up to the profits you make. I mean, that's kind of the entire, like, it's not restricted to, like, mental health medications, though. You know, the issues with the pharmaceutical industry and how they operate um, in, in many ways is, you know, ex has severe limitations, you know, against, right, uh, yeah, pa against patient health, right? So it's, you know, so absolutely, absolutely, I, I do um, agree that, you know, a lot of the pharmaceutical practices are uh, contraindicated in many ways to looking at human health in contextual ways. Yes. Absolutely. Right? That, you know, whether medical, whether psychiatric, whether psychological, you know, the Absolutely. the way that we look at, you know, problems is an extremely compartmentalized and underneath the compartmentalization, a profit driven system. Exactly. And a medical system that is market driven will not serve people. And since our field is the psychological field. We're looking there, but it is, I totally agree with you. It's omnipresent. Doctors are bribed. The least a doctor gets is $30,000 a year. We're having occasional seminars with colleagues with a drug representative present serving the wine and cheese where they tout the marvels of whatever drug they're being paid to hustle. And if you say anything critical, you're off the gravy train. Minimum is 30 grand a year. This is a corruption of the entire healthcare system, not just mental health. I totally agree with you. But it's since this is our field, we're looking at the bogus claims of healing through drugs that don't heal, of problems not having anything to do with the society, including the social environment of a family going on to the fact that American society is crumbling. And just locating it in a as a chemical imbalance to be corrected by chemicals blames the individual, excises any social responsibility, and fails. Even according to the American Institutes of Mental Health, 
And that institute doesn't have an advertising budget. So you'd have to look it up to see National Institutes of Mental Health, see what they say about it. So in the article, these psychiatric survivors, uh, they talk about this this chemical imbalance myth as a form of social control. Now, do you actually think that's on purpose or is that just a byproduct? I think it's a byproduct. I think profit is the purpose. Profit is the be all and end all of capitalism. You know, to compete, you get ahead, you make more money. And I don't think they care about the consequences. And we have to, because the consequences are very severe. Well, the consequences are felt, you know, the burden of the consequences are, are, you know, burdens people, right? Rather than, yeah, so that's why it's important to address these issues. Um, You know, I, I think there is a definite profit motive, but there's also kind of, you know, the general uh, way of how our capitalist system deals with any kind of like, you know, these very complex issues is again, like compartmentalization and not just compartmentalization, but expedience. Yes. And excising social and political and economic forces to make the problems all in your head. Bad choices. That's why you're being evicted. Uh, Hello. You know, there are huge economic and social costs. We had Dawn Martinez on our program, and it's not just in your head, who was an editor of the wonderful collection of the theory, a socially informed theory of mental illness, where she saw individuals in the middle of a triangle. And one side of the triangle was personal, another side was economic, and the third was political. And a person is subject to all of these forces rather than just they have some chemical imbalance that has nothing to do with the failures of society. And that's a, a po- indirectly a political issue. However, I don't think politics informs the drug companies. I think they're driven by profit and they don't care what they do to people as long as their responsibility to their shareholders of producing more profit is met. And that is inhumane to have a market-driven healthcare system. Right. It's a it's a profit motivated political system. Yes, right. Oh, totally. you know, so and so yeah, you know, it, it's not so much that politics influences you know, um, these companies, but more that these companies have an undue influence on policy and politics that end up, you know, impacting people's lives in, in many ways, you know, so, so yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, specific to, you know, um, psychiatric medications, right? Like, even if they are effective, even if they are, right? Putting people in distressed environments where they are unable to rest and heal limits the benefit of any medications. Well, that's of course true. However, from everything I've read, and I really read up on this and did programs on it, the effectiveness is to numb and pacify and actually depress the mental activities of the patients. Yeah, and I think that's why many people, you know, including these people in the article, feel like it is a form of social control. It it can be, inadvertently, absolutely it is. And that one in five adults in the United States is on one of these psych meds, and one in 10 children is on them, really means that they will be less active and they'll have much less energy. It's particularly illustrated in the issue, in the question of Ritalin, which is given for um, hyperactivity disorder in children. And some schools require that children are drugged with Ritalin in order to attend school. But it turns out there was an expose that Ritalin is a, a medication that is like, it's like speed. 
and that this is a, a direct, it was exposed and they paid a big fine as a direct profit-making hoax. And that is serious. Yeah, it's very interesting because if you are a psychiatrist, then it must be a very uncomfortable position to be in because to what degree, you know, is your profession responsible for legitimizing this false idea um they're supposed to be sort of trusted professionals and their profession lends legitimacy but from conversations we've had on here it's obvious like if you've only got 15 minutes with a patient like exactly because they used to be paid at least four times as much but once they go on uh, some kind of a managed care, they only get a quarter as much. So they give people 15 minutes and write their meds and get the whole fee that way four times as much as they get for the 15 minutes. And so, you know, it's a profit motivated decision that has nothing to do with helping people. And people are abandoned by the psychiatric community. There's a book by Davies who's a psychiatrist called Cracked that very carefully researches and reports on this. And it's all, the opposite evidence is everywhere if you know where to look and most patients don't. Well, this is why ultimately this article, these authors um, find it difficult to trust um, because, because this idea, the chemical imbalance myth has bled out into some sort of folk wisdom and then your family and friends believe in it and then that just becomes like an extra layer of poison right it does because it's part of the culture and people are acculturated into that lie remember we had um a woman named higgins on who wrote about her comeback from schizophrenia in her wonderful book They were plying her with medication. She just had to understand what she'd been through so that she could come back. But had she listened to the psychiatric establishment, she would have been numbed and dumbed for the rest of her life. This way she wasn't. It's terribly destructive, this fraud for profit. At any rate, I have a client now who was diagnosed schizophrenic because his father woke him up in the middle of the night He had been going through a bad period because he broke up with his girlfriend. He he had been smoking pot, like almost everybody else in his age cohort. And his father woke him and he was in the middle of a nightmare and he punched a hole in the wall, after which his parents called an ambulance, had him hauled off to a hospital where he said, there's nothing wrong with me, I was just pissed. So that he was labeled in denial and as a schizophrenic, And he said, I'm not going to take your pills. So they gave him an injection against his will. And he's diagnosed now as schizophrenic, having to take these injections. He is getting off of the medication and doing really quite quite well. But those horror stories are routine. It's a terrible thing just for blind profit. You know, you pay the traffic ticket when you're fined, as Biederman's assistant said. But you do damage. Right, yeah, I realised I, I mentioned the Dopamine Nation book earlier, so um, actually, well, I just want to return to that point because I think it's <clears throat> worth finishing. Um, I'm wondering sort of what the next thing will be that gets pedals. Um, I mean, if there's any intuitions, feel free to share them. But, um, yeah, in this book, Dopamine Nation, she talks about rather than the chemical imbalance she has these illustrations of a seesaw with pain on one side and, and pleasure on the other side and but the, the you pain, can pleasure hypothesis is also a, a chemical imbalance hypothesis those are very closely related yes they are right right but and this is part of the book where i felt like uh, are they trying to slip something under the radar here that instead of a chemical imbalance, you have this plain pain-pleasure balance. As you said, it sort of relates to chemicals um, or an idea like that. But, you know, it's an interesting book. I just felt like, is this just redressing the chemical imbalance thing in new clothes? It is. They are constant. They're very inventive. They have excellent high-paid minds working on how to 
capture a market share through an imaginative, an imaginative um, mechanism of justifying what they're currently doing, selling drugs. And then they have another huge marketing enterprise inducing psychiatrists for money to tout this to their colleagues, writing articles and getting prestigious psychiatrists to sign them for money and so on. It's, um, it's a true racket. And they're making a lot of money at everyone's expense here. Um, equally, I just wondered, um, I don't know if we've necessarily covered enough about sort of your perspectives on this or maybe the you know potential maybe dangers of i don't know you know that maybe there's a sort of stigma attached to meds or or stuff like that and yeah just you know penny for your thoughts this is my main concern working with mostly um lower income clients you know myself being a lower income person and most of my friends you know kind of hanging on the the baseline of survival right is that i think you know because a lot of my friends are dependent on their medications to function and to be able to get to their jobs and they do not have and they cannot expect any kind of social financial support coming from the state or in, in any way in you know in in the near term right um and so it's one of those things where you know i am always extremely it, i think it there is a difference between talking about systemic issues of the pharmaceutical industry and also necessarily demonizing medication and i think i feel the latter is extremely unproductive you know this is one of the reasons why like you know, do do i actually like like uh, amphetamines or methamphetamines or or you know or heroin or any of those there's a reason that you know i'm for the legalization of those drugs mm. Me too. Right. Because people need options to survive right now. Yes, they do. They're in a terrible state. And one of the options is joining with other people to change it, which is very right. empowering and why so many Americans are now joining unions. Right. But I mean, it is. And I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. You know that, you know, but it that doesn't necessarily address, you know, like. A lot of my friends with, you know, a lot of mental health issues often find those environments really stressful. Yes. And don't I don't think in, in, in those environments very long because it's beyond their ability of working full time and trying to, you know, take care of their own life and be politically active on top of them. And, you know, if you ask any of them, they say, you know, take away my medication and all of that falls apart and I become homeless. Well, part of it is you're in a caring profession and the United States utterly devalues caring. It's not. Oh, practical. absolutely. Because it's not profitable at all to care for people, you know. So, so again, like, it, it, you know, ultimately, like, I, I don't believe that mental health is only environmental. That I think there may be biological and genetic components. Right. Um, because we know very little about the brain. In fact, we know very little about the body <laughs> in many ways. Um, so I, I don't necessarily want to throw out the baby with the bathwater because, you know, we, we are still learning about a lot of things. It's just that we know that the pharmaceutical industry generally takes the most expedient and profitable form of action, right? Rather than the most patient beneficial form of action and and for me um you know the most important thing that i always stress to people is that you know regardless of how people feel about medication that not providing social care to people is failing them and making whatever medication whether it's you know physical medication right like if somebody's diabetic and they have to work three jobs and they right and they don't have 
Well, even if you are not like the type one or insulin dependent diabetics, right? A lot of diabetics, you know, would like to be able to work shorter shifts, actually cook their meals or make healthier choices, mm -hmm. right? But because of their work and financial status, they are unable to make those lifestyle changes that are necessary for their health. Yeah, I'd like to come back to this point. Uh, there's this element in the article where it, it's just sort of talking about what happens to your identity um, around ideas of chemical imbalance or when, you know, it stops being seen as true. Um, you know, as far as your, your friends are concerned, it doesn't matter what the theories are or what's true or what's untrue. They take the meds and they function and everything works in that sense. Um, but I do wonder when, you know, a piece of news like this uh, drops what happens does does that percolate into culture into society and then how do people think of themselves i imagine the consequences of it might be quite vast uh in terms of you know having this way of thinking about yourself and then that not actually turning out to be true at all no i think people are not blaming their by not blaming their chemical imbalance they might look for other things that hold them back and not feel that they are just a chemical weirdo. And then they start, might start thinking, well, how did I get here? Because the way to health is to figure, how did I get here and how can I find my way out? Kind of like Hansel and Gretel in the woods. And experiencing those things they couldn't experience because they were too painful, so painful they threatened survival, and working them through, as in therapy, group therapy, and so on, which are luxuries in the United States and shouldn't be because they should be part of a basic free health care plan we don't have. But I think it makes people feel like they are biologically some kind of sicko. Well, also, any past conflicts someone might have had with a psychiatrist that might get them labeled as being sort of a problematic patient you know in regards to depression chemical imbalance like in retrospect maybe this person wasn't being difficult they were just being a, you know a human being um <clears throat> but yeah i don't know equally um you know your your friends clients gone through this process is there sort of any conceptualizing of it the chemical imbalance stuff or is it just literally about survival well i mean i think almost all of them don't necessarily buy the simple like i am only chemical imbalance you know that that's a lot more actually prevalent in the the middle class and and higher tier actually um that's where I think, you know, that's the most dominant because, you know, people in that tier kind of understand, you know, at least their life lives may be very, very stressful, right? Because living under capitalism um, is stressful in general. But, you know, their basic survival needs are met, you know, um, a lot of, you know, it, especially when people do come from like, you know, stable families you know where they have relatively good relationships with their parents and their siblings and extended families um and you know they still have you know depression and anxiety and whatnot when you know they have a decent marriage they've got decent friends they've got a decent job you know it's a lot more easier to point to hey like you know i've got this chemical imbalance problem right um the you know people that have had to struggle with survival for a long time do generally you know don't necessarily like simply think of themselves as chemically imbalanced again i think that's one of the ways of how a lot of like you know the middle class culturally dominates the conversation that doesn't necessarily reflect what you know people are feeling in various sectors mm -hmm. yeah i do think that the experience of the wealthy is written about or at least the well-to-do and the vast mass of struggling people, because you have to remember about half of Americans don't even have $500 in case of an acute emergency and are living desperately paycheck to paycheck. So they don't have access to other means. 
But all the medications that I know of do for them is numb them. And that's not the same as healing, of course. Nobody's cured from them. No, I mean, and, and to a certain degree, one of the issues is also that, you know, a lot of people do not trust therapists as much as they distrust psychiatrists, right? That there is an equal amount of distrust. Yes, there is. And there's an equal amount of therapists that suck at their jobs, just like plumbers or psychiatrists or dentists or anybody else. There isn't the kind of as American society breaks down, the devotion to do well by people in your job also breaks down. So when you find someone conscientious and not just interested in taking the money and running in any field, you're very lucky. And that's true of plumbers or electricians or psychiatrists or therapists. And we have to face that. There's a lot of ripoff people around. And it's very rare to find someone conscientious and committed. Right. You know, so so it's it's in this kind of environment, you know, I don't necessarily blame, you know, some of the people that I know where, you know, their approach is I would rather have the drugs than have to talk to any of you people ever in my life again. Yeah. Well, I, I can see that just like there are people who won't take the COVID vaccines, even though U.S. has the most COVID dead in the entire world, even though we're only about 5% of the population at most, because they don't trust the pharmaceutical establishment and they don't trust the government. And so that's why we're dying. Yeah, what happens to a culture that just doesn't trust anything? Because um, I just imagine everything must fall apart at that point, or cooperation goes out the window. You just, when trust has just sort of been vacuumed out of a culture, surely that's like the end. Well, I don't think it's that people don't trust. It's just that we have a polarization of like, you know, because the people that don't trust pharmaceutical industries or the state still have trusted figures. Like right, whether that's, you know, whether that's religion or whether that's, you know, various other things could be Donald Trump could be, you know, their their church could, you know, but it, what we have is kind of a polarization of two people warring in the defense of their trusted authorities. Right. That's true. There's people who trust Donald Trump and who trust that whatever he says is true in spite of the evidence, and people who distrust Donald Trump and think whatever he says is false and trust the government or Dr. Fauci around uh, injections. It, it's um, Right, or, or, and there are people that don't trust Donald Trump and that don't trust the government either that exactly. may have. Right. You know, that, you know, it's so base. I mean, it's very rare that like, you know, people don't trust anyone at all. They usually have some kind of figure that they trust. It's just that, you know, generally, you know, our institutional trust has been degraded greatly. Yes. And I think people look then to something they can trust. Right. Subjectively trustworthy or not, because they're right. desperate. Or they fall apart, which is, that's why the United States has a mental health crisis. A lot of people are falling apart. And trust is one of the basic 10 things that make a society healthy. Yeah, and presumably a key part of recovery and or sort of general day-to-day -day health is that, you know, you can rely on other people and you can trust them and they can trust you, etc. Exactly, because we're social animals. We need each other. And that's why is distrust is, is a terrible, terrible thing among human beings. You know, I look at mass murder. Every day, people are mass, there's a mass murder in the United States. Only the big ones now get the newspaper, get in the newspaper because it's the routine. And a big, they don't even define mass murder as anything but four people killed, shot and killed by a stranger. And there are 
more than one a day in the U.S. And people react with personal solutions. They get the omnipresent bulletproof book packs for their children. They don't go in public places. They're always afraid. And they instill that fear into their children. But those are all personal decisions. They're not social. The social protection isn't there. The Supreme Court just allowed concealed carry, people to conceal guns and take them everywhere. New York is trying to fight that by not allowing your gun on the subway or in the buses or in certain areas, but they won't know if you've got a gun or not because it's, it could be concealed. So people are individually scared because they've been looking for individual solutions. Other countries do it differently. You know, like New Zealand had one mass shooting that was terribly frightening, and Jacinda Ardern, the socialist labor candidate, they were killing Muslims, so she wore a headscarf and said, we're all one people, and they banned private guns. And people supported her in that. But we don't have anything like that, anything like a social response. And the NRA and the big corporations, once again, capitalism, there's an ugly head that the gun corporations continue to buy the legislators who don't protect us. Yeah, I'm thinking about the idea of, you know, a lack of trust or betrayal. You know, not only were you lied to, which is something that then became a cultural meme, that also, you know, people have taken their lives based off ideas like this one, believing they're inherently messed up, they have a chemical imbalance, you know, it's all their fault, etc. So even if you weren't, you know, personally uh, ever um, taking meds for depression, you know, I'm sure that you have family or friends that have. Um, it's just, and you know, potentially based off bad ideas. Um, so there's just a lot of suffering. Um, so how does, yeah, the psychiatric profession respond to something like this? I mean, even on a consumer level, um, you know, how many successful books have been published around this idea of the chemical imbalance theory and, you know, how many people are responsible, uh, for sort of cultivating this culture? around this idea and well i mean and it, and again it comes down to kind of like the compartmentalization of, of there is a certain well-meaning aspect to the medicalization model in that it is trying to link a mind-body connection a little bit more in some ways you know but ultimately a capitalism always warps any positives you know, from any kind of understanding into ex like simplified expedience, right? Because the capitalist state is not about, you know, a holistic approach to anything, but like, here are the crumbs, here is the bare minimum that you will get. Take this and shut the fuck up. Right. It's just also, it is all around profit, which buys, you know, it makes the best democracies money can buy. And healthcare is a bought and sold item here. And I think people do feel betrayed and abandoned because they don't have anyone to trust to keep them even minimally healthy. And this is really terribly unsettling and painful and drives people mad. And cure them. Right. I mean, you know, even if you don't necessarily stick to just the mental health, like you see this in a lot of, you know, kind of like, you know, surrounding conditions, right? Whether you're a chronic pain patient, whether you have autoimmune disorders or rare disorders, you know, the, long, the latest one being like long COVID. You know, people are kind of, you know, I mean, basically, like, you know, a lot of medicine 
often abandons people simply because it is an expedience model. It, it is part of the model, right? That if you don't fit, like if the standardized treatment does not work for you, we would rather not try and figure you out and be creative and try things because that's also a liability risk. Right. Because you everything, know, um, everything is a liability in, in the capitalist state, right? Um, and so, yeah, it, it's like this, it's, it's a house of layers of layers of layers of issues to create this like humongous problem to human health, right? Like, you know, the, the fact that there is no rainwater that is safe to drink because of forever chemicals, right? you know? I, I am not someone that's usually surprised by bad news, but, you know, that did take me back a little bit, you know? So it's, it, because, you know, I mean, what, about a credit card's worth of microplastics every few months or something like that. I mean, you know, all these things, you know, about our environment, about our social environment, about our political environment, about our civil society, um, you know, about our production and how we produce like these are all linked you know and it's it's really really unfortunate to live in this compartmentalized world where nothing matters but profit yeah and where people have liberated themselves they have united these disparate movements of people who have suffered terribly and who suffer terribly, which is the mass of people, into a political movement for all, all people, like in France under Mélenchon, he, you know, he united the communists, the socialists, the the indigenous people, the black people in protest against racism, women in protest against sexism transsexuals, homosexuals, and so on, in protest against discrimination against them, climate activists to say, we all are in it together, we all support each other, we need an alternative to capitalist exploitation. And those countries have more hope because they have a unified movement. And in the US, there's a kind of beginning of that class awareness in the absolute boom in union organizations that say we're all in this together. We need a decent standard of living for all of us. And they've been very, very successful. Um, Chipotle just won $24 an hour beginning salaries. And at the Amazon labor union certainly shook up the Amazon workers and Starbucks has 200 Starbucks that are now organized, and they're organized overwhelmingly by the young women who work there. But there is an awareness that we all need each other that's showing up in the union movement, but we don't yet have a politically unifying, sensible movement the way they have in France, the way they had in Colombia, in South America, which is why they just won the first left government they've ever had, or Chile, where they won, but all based on that kind of unity. And I think that's what we need, because then we could have an organization that all of us could trust, and so we wouldn't feel so lonely and betrayed. And I think just to sort of end on the, a positive, um, there is a very good movie on Amazon Prime, LOL, great company uh called 13 lives and uh, it's about the rescue of uh some thai uh children who got stuck in this cave and whilst maybe it's cheese ball or something to talk about a movie but it's just uh kind of powerful because it's about you know f there's five thousand people ultimately were involved in trying to save these kids um and as far as that, I mean, I don't know the the maths of it, the accounts of doing it all, but I don't think the Thai state was necessarily concerned about money. I don't, I mean, I don't know. Right. 
they were rescuing these children. Yeah, I guess the dystopian question is, do things have to get really bad before uh, good things happen? Yeah, well, I do think they are pretty bad now. And there are very hopeful signs where there's a flood, where there's a snowstorm in the United States. People generally help one another out. They generally do. And because there is something where we recognize we're in it together, and that's hopeful. But what you need is an organization that represents that so you know where to go or you have some trust that you'll be represented. I think it's very symbolically important that the vice president of Colombia is a black woman who worked as a house cleaner before and who's an excellent political leader who was recognized because it basically says, whatever prestige or money you had in your job, we care about your activities towards the, for the collective. That's what's important here. And I think that message would have to be conveyed in a socially class striated society, which Ikoi illustrated very well. You know, that you really need that. And an issue like saving kids from a cave is not politically charged. So you won't have a whole funded opposition. Let's not fund those kids. It's not good for profit. No, it's a sort of safe way to be collective. And we'd have to help people feel safe in a collective effort in the UK and the US. Massive thank you as always to our VIP patrons, Alex Placito, Bruce Rogers Vaughan, Jennifer Cox, Justin Harper, Rebecca Johns, Seamus O'Connell, and Sheena Belmas. If you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolf and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. And you can hear more from Harriet on her radio show called Interpersonal Update. It's on WBAI at 2.30 EST on Wednesday afternoons and in the WBAI archives.